fantastic. Okay, so the penultimate session, the trends that we find across the industry and how to calibrate them, analyze, evaluate, and take meaningful action. To open up the session and to act as our moderator, gives us great pleasure to welcome the head of retail distribution at MLC Asset Management, Tom Keenan. Can you guys hear me? I'm on, okay, great. Good afternoon, everyone. And uh, <clears throat> it's great to be up here and, and like everyone, um, full of gratitude to, uh, to, be, to be here in person. I was asked to give a, a couple of, um, uh, a bit of perspective on the conference, which is, which is always dangerous when you're a fund manager. So careful what you wish for. But um, I've spoken to a lot of people, caught up with a lot of people over the last two days because, and as I've mentioned to many, I've been living in Asia for the past eight years. Uh, working in this industry, but, but watching from afar all the change that's going on. And, you know, so I've done a, a lot of comparing what I left eight years ago to, to, to what I've walked into. And to be honest, it's been, it's been challenging. I've, I've, I've had a lot to, 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 to catch up on. And um, I, I intuitively knew it, but it wasn't until I started talking to everyone and, and, and understanding how big that change was. Um, so I thought I'd come up here and talk about all of that change, but as I sit here over the last day and a half, what I've realised is how much hasn't changed. Because I, I, I think if we were sitting here eight years ago, uh, that would be June 2013, I think topics like the need for technology innovation, the need for regulatory change, the need to professionalise the industry, how uh, we need to reduce the cost of advice, how to increase the efficiency of the advice process. I think that would have been the whole agenda eight years ago. So it's pretty frightening what hasn't changed. So it got me thinking last night, well, what has changed? And I think it's sort of two things, if I can boil it down to. One is the urgency that things need to change, because I found those orphan clients that we're talking about, I mean, I, I knew what was going on, but the numbers kind of shocked me yesterday. I hadn't seen the numbers on that. So that shocked me. Um, and then obviously Paul and the supply and demand imbalance that he described earlier is obviously creating this enormous urgency. And I think this then creates a lot, you know, gives cause for optimism because I think the other thing that's changed is the intensity, because I think the will was to change eight years ago was there, but the intensity of that will I think is palpable in this room and suddenly something that I hadn't sort of fully appreciated until I got here. So there was sort of some humble perspectives from, from my perspective as someone who's sort of been out of the industry for, for, for eight years and, 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 and coming back in and, and really looking forward to, to working and engaging with everyone. Um, so I think I've got the easiest job of the conference um, and that is to introduce Andrew Winwood. Uh, he has, I've just been told, spoken um, at every one of these uh, conferences and I think that's, uh, Colin, is that 12, 12 of these? 12, 11, 12? Okay, so that's pretty impressive. So you obviously know a lot more about what he's going to talk, uh, know a lot more about what he's going to talk to than I do. I haven't seen this for a few years. He just took me through his presentation and I think the thing that struck me was hopefully this is going to take our talking about, you know, what the problems are and how we need to fix them to talking about some growth and some ideas for growth. And, 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 and you know, Andrew's going to do that by just taking us through exactly what's going on in the industry right now today. So please join me in welcoming Andrew, wherever he is, there he is, uh, to do just that. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, it's a great pleasure as always to be here. I wish I was um, 
here in 2010, which is when we first started doing that, when I had more hair and it was less grey, and I weighed less. Um, I, I, we do the licensee research every year, and we've done it for a long time because I've always wanted to understand what the flex looks like in the industry, what's growing, what's driving, and, and, and what's actually happening. By background, I'm an economist, um, which unlike financial advisor, isn't a protected term. It's as meaningful as juggler or, or, or magician or any of those kind of things. It doesn't actually mean anything. I have a degree in economics, but that doesn't really mean anything. What I'm really talking about today is what's actually happening in the, in the industry and how the advisors are feeling. We're a small, for those of you who don't know, we're a small but global firm, so we see a lot of what's coming down the, down the pipeline from overseas. So we're going to look at that towards the end of that, uh, end of this. Uh, and we possess something slightly different to most of the people in, in this industry, which is a constant stream of data from the industry. These two big databases that we own, Athena owns every question that we've ever asked for the past 20 years in a big data, data lake. Anubis is a, every advisor that we have around the world. That's England, America, Australia, and other those places. And we're constantly asking them questions and pulling data from it. So we have primary sources all the time so we can see what's happening. And we're changing the way we're asking questions. Instead of the big, long questionnaires, we're doing little interstitial questionnaires, which means we can aggregate data back to individuals so we can see what's happening very quickly. But that's beside the point. What's really the point is that two years ago, when I stood up and talked about this, I talked about the unintended consequences of the Hain Commission and what was about to happen. And the metaphor I used was the Titanic. When the Titanic plowed into an iceberg uh, off the coast of New York in 1912, um, there's a whole bunch of things that happened to cause that. A guy had left, had been thrown off the ship and taken the keys to the binocular cabinet so no one could see very well into the, into the future. But the most interesting, interesting thing that happened is that a lot of people were thrown into the water and they drowned. There weren't actually enough lifeboats on the, on the Titanic to deal with the people that were on the Titanic. So people froze to death. Whether or not Jack could have got onto the door with whatever her name was, we don't know. Um, we like to think that she was being a bit selfish and he was being a bit proud. But the reality is that people drowned and it was quite bad. What happened as a result of that is that the legislators acted. They didn't act particularly quickly in this case. They took three years to act. And they came up with a thing called the Safety at Sea Act. And they said that every boat over a certain tonnage has to have lifeboats on it. And you have to find somewhere to put the, the lifeboats on it and you have to take care of it. And this is the SS Eastland. It was a uh, ship in the Great Lakes in America. And the Great Lakes ships, as you know, the Great Lakes are deep and then suddenly shallow. So they're all flat bottom ships. So what they did was they put all the lifeboats on it as requested by the legislation. And then it promptly rolled over and killed 844 people. That's not unlike what's happening in our industry at the moment. The legislation is driving. They didn't go to the engineers and said, how should we put lifeboats on this? They just said, put lifeboats on it. And they went, OK. Uh, we don't know how this is going to go. And this is what happened. It was in complete compliance at the time they died. So the owners of the SS Eastland were able to go back to the courts in Chicago and say, it was compliant. Read the PDS. We did exactly what you told us to do. And 844 people died. So that was kind of interesting. So what happened at the time that they were doing it? They had this thing called the Engelhardt Collapsible Lifeboat. I don't know who Engelhardt was. I suspect he went on to the 1970s to release a popular series of albums under the last name Humperdinck. <laughs> but um, the reality was they weren't particularly good lifeboats. Uh, they were, they were canvas-sided, cork-bottomed, and they, people didn't do very well in them. But things had to change. I want to talk about now how the markets behaved since the Hain Royal Commission and do spend a little bit of time talking about that and what's actually going on. And it is the great diaspora. People have started to move around and started to move around very quickly. Um, in the, I was looking for an analogy for this. As you know, when I like to do these things, I like to find analogies because that creates a cognitive anchoring for the people in the audience so they can remember it. 
a guy at dinner last night told me he doesn't listen to the economic stuff I talk about. He only likes the history stuff, and the rest of it he can read later on. I thought, oh, fantastic. That's 20 hours wasted, but nonetheless. Um, <laughs> the reality is that the industry has changed shape, and fundamentally, and forever. And you can see what's going on. If you can look at the top tier, which is people with greater than 500 people in their licenses, uh, and the second tier, tier one, tier two, three, and you can see how people are shifting around the space, and people are moving very fast. Um, this is the reality of the industry now. And the really interesting part about this for me is this, how does this affect consumers? And how does it affect the manufacturer of product? Because if you've listened to Core Data much in the past, you can know that we track the way in which the, data, the, the their money moves through the system from the, from the surplus savings of the consumers to the investment manager to the compliance person. We can track that all the way through. And we can see how much money is lost in each part of that system or how much value is created, where the value is created. And if in the past you were a, you were a manufacturer of services, you could very easily talk to the, the majority of the industry. Now that's really impossible. Fourth, a quarter of the advisors are in the top tier. And then you can see how the other splits are working. So all of a sudden, the ability to actually have a cogent and meaningful conversation with the network has changed forever. The types of people that you've got to talk to, the way in which you've got to talk to them, how you get to them has fundamentally changed. So that's going to make life more complex. And my suspicion is the net winner out of this may be the BDMs. They're going to have to be invested in massively after two years of underinvestment. And the net loser could be the client because of the way in which it's going to struggle to get better services and better products through the system. And we need to understand that. Here's a way to have a look at what happened. I, I left the lag too long on this, so I should tell a joke at this point, but we'll just go on with it. But you can see what happened here. This is five waves of data. We have a, a data mining tool called Anubis, and that goes out to the network every quarter, every month, and then every quarter, and aggregates the moves in financial services. It's an automatic tool. It mines LinkedIn. It mines a whole bunch of other services, mines ASIC, pulls it all into a database, and allows us to see where people are moving to and from. And this is the really interesting thing. Have a look at the bottom left-hand corner of this. The biggest grower hasn't been any one of the sectors. It's been advisors leaving the industry. I'm going to come back to the term protected term here. Because financial advisor is a protected term, but wealth coach isn't a protected term, private banker isn't a protected term, family wealth manager is not a protected term. The fastest growing group in this class is inside advisors that left the industry and they're calling themselves something else. Reasonable sized family wealth managers, there used to be about 18 of them in Sydney, there's now 212. Really interesting, right? So when the next Royal Commission comes, I'm telling you where it's coming from today. You watch these guys go. They're not going to be under financial advice. This is like Melissa Caddick, who it was terrible sadness, you know, robbed a lot of people, but also took her own life. It was of some irony to me that her sneaker that she was found in was an ASIC sneaker. Did anyone notice that? Um, it's a terrible joke, right? I'm sorry. Um, I'm nervous. Um, uh, <laughs> you are laughing, though. That counts, right? Uh, um, so the point, the, the point that I'm making here is that it's not going to come from the industry. It will be the industry will be tarred with it, but it won't come from the industry. It'll come from one of the bottom unregulated tiers because tier one, tier two, and tier three are highly regulated. Tier one, as someone pointed out, has almost got Stockholm syndrome. They're too scared to, to actually do anything until they've spoken to the regulator. Tier two, tier three are, are, are very compliant. Tier four, invisible. The really interesting thing about the tier four and tier five businesses are not only are they invisible, they don't bear the cost of meeting the legislation because they just don't do it. So their profitability is jacked up because they sit outside scrutiny. And that's going to be really interesting. Same with the private wealth managers, sit outside scrutiny. I'm not an economist, 
Can you imagine a profession that said, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, I'm a naturopath? I suppose that exists, right? That's kind of interesting and, and mistakes are made. But we have to consider that and we have to consider how we act as an industry with that and we have to observe it and we ought to have an opinion on that and we ought to be talking about this. This is different to the profession. Okay. One of the reasons that this is also interesting, and I will try and do some historic anchors in this, and for those of you who know me, you know I'm both a history and a math nerd. This is one of my favourite guys. He's a name called Derek J. DeSola Price. He's like one of all those guys who are from England, not all those guys, but a number of people from England. They're geniuses and they're polymaths, and he, he rebuilt a, an ancient Greek computer. He got a PhD in history, and when he was doing his PhD in history, he noticed one interesting thing, is that, the, that, that all of the papers that were written by uh, people who had PhDs in histories and produced great work was about it was the square root of the number inside the people who had actually got PhDs who produced the papers. Then his other great hobby was music, and then he noticed that the square root of the, of the number of people who were composing produced all the hits, and that number holds true for everything. Turns out Price's law is that half the work in every industry is done by the square root of the number of the people in the industry. It's different to the Pareto principle, but it's just as meaningful. Licensees that we know very well, we worked with them recently at 144 licensees, we got all their data from them, it was 12 people who were producing half the work. Well, that's interesting. That's almost exactly the square root. Um, 15,000 people in, let's say, advisors at the moment in the industry. Any maths geniuses here pop quiz what the square root of 15,000 might be? It's about 122. 122 firms doing half the work of the entire industry. That becomes really interesting when you start to think about the industry like that. Think about your own organisation. We're about 140 people in core data, which means there's about 12 people doing half the work. That's frightening, right? But that's, that's interesting. And think about your own, own business and, and square root the number of people in it. So that's what's going on. So if we start to think about that, we don't actually have one industry. We have multiple industries. We have one group who are doing half the work and then the rest of it who are doing the rest of the work. And the value exists in different places. So constructing value inside a network, so that is complicated. Okay, so let's dig into the research proper now and, and find out what we discovered this year. And we're only going to focus on the top tier, medium and large licensees at the moment. We couldn't really usefully get sample on those single entities. It's just, we got sample, but it's not meaningful because every one of those is a population of one inside a population of one and it doesn't really mean. So it's only where we have big, big numbers that we can actually do useful understanding. So, as I said before, the useful number is that it's, the licensees are shrinking, but it's not generally across, it's mostly out. And it's out because of legislation, it's out because of education, it's out because of for economics. So the most common thing isn't someone moving to another licence, it's the leaving the industry, and the previous numbers showed the same thing. Um, the really interesting thing about this is we started to look into profitability, size and scale, and so we're asking the questions, how many people do you actually manage? inside your business. And this becomes really interesting because this actually gives you the clues to growth and it gives you the clues to profitability. And one of the reasons that it gives you the clues to growth is because of this guy. This is Robin Dunbar. He's a, another English polymath. And he said that the number of people that any human can usefully manage is about 150. If we go back, turns out naturally we're kind of hitting that number, right? We're naturally hitting the 150 number. That's where we're getting there. So Dunbar turns out to be right. The really interesting part about this is if you start to think about profitability, and if you start to think about growth, we can't make that population any bigger. In the current system, the number of people you can usefully manage is about 150. If you want to achieve growth, you have to achieve higher value per client, higher exchange of value per client, or find another system that you can scale, because this system, as it currently exists, will not scale. That's how humans work. 
there are all sorts of parts of the industry which are really interesting. And there are all sorts of the parts of the industry which are price makers and parts of the industry which are price takers. I hate to say this to the platform guys here, but eventually you will be price takers. There was, this is on for the race to zero. We've talked about this for years. That's what happens. The electricity systems around Australia are price takers, not price makers. The people who have skills and services can be price makers. The people who have software and processes can be price makers. And you have to decide where in this system that you sit and how you're going to do it. Because unless you can scale above this, then this is going to be a problem for the industry. So growth becomes complex. So what's true about the industry when we look at look about, um, the, the, the farm of, of the businesses? The industry is skewed towards the lower end. So that means there's a smaller number of people with a larger number of profits, which starts to prove out prices law. That's starting to prove out what's going on inside the system. Um, Revenue is, is really interesting. It's a really important to number to, 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 to model because if you can model revenue, you can reliably model profitability. And if you can reliably pro model profitability, you can reliably model growth unless there's an insertion of capital. You can reliably model compliance unless there's an insertion of capital or process. So you can start to understand what's going on. And you can see that for the vast bulk of these people, there's less than a million dollars in revenue to go around. So that starts to constrain growth, unless they're inside a network which is investing in them, which means that the assets have to come from somewhere else. They have to come from outside the system. In the past, that's come from the licensee or the bank or someone else. Now it's got to come from somewhere else, and that's starting to become really interesting. It's untrue to say that people are unprofitable. About 84% of each segment is profitable. It's untrue to say that people haven't been able to replace, replace income, and you can see here about how much of conflicted REM is left in the system. It's about 3% now, so that's a relatively small number, and it'll be zero, I reckon, in a year's time. So we've done that relatively handily uh, as an industry. So there are things going on which are important. But the really interesting part about this to me is when we asked them how much their licensee had aided with this process, you can see how well the mid-tiers are doing with this and how poorly the top tier is doing with this. Well, I think this is partly to do with the top tier have had to drive the biggest change, and change is hard. You know what Carl Jung had to say about change? Your ability to change is your ability to put up with pain. Change hurts. It's painful. So I still think that we're still getting some of that Jungian effect in this, that people are still saying this really hurt and it sucked. But that's true, but it had to. There was no other way around it. So that data is starting to come clear. And the large and the medium are doing a good job in this space. However, this is possibly, and in some ways I like to think, the most important slide in the deck. There's 57 slides in the deck. I'm happy to share them with everyone. And I think this is probably the most important one. Year on year, this is the number which is starting to go up, and it's really important. People are starting to talk about growth again. It's not about survival. The conversation has started to shift from survival to growth. Two years in a row, it's, I've just got to get through this, I've got to get through this, I've got to get through this. And the conversation is starting to flex towards growth. And how this group behaves, the people in this room behave, is going to define how growth works in the next three years. <coughs> Remember, growth is one of the things that if everyone's growing and they're having good years, then it's easy to put up with a fair amount of pain. Cordart has had two record years. It's been pretty painful, but we can put up with it because everyone gets paid and they get bonuses and all those kind of things. But, but it still hurts, right? Someone's got to do the work, and that's important. This is one of the places where growth is going to come from, the race to reprice. So people are starting to try and reprice their services and push it up, and that's a good part because I think that a lot of advisors underprice their services. And the ability to ask the true value of what they provide is going to be really important. We've done a lot of work on this. We did all the price modelling for the government on this. And it's really important to understand the true cost of advice is bloody expensive because you've got to bear all the input costs into this. And it has to be done quite, quite properly. So now the government's got a, a true cost of advice model. They know what you should be charging. 
and most people persistently undercharge for their service and try and make the money up elsewhere because they find that conversation about true cost of labour and hard to unpalatable in some cases. Um, the next part to look at is one of the ways in which people frame the network. I'm not sure how to think about this. I think the cost of doing business is really important. Um, but one of the ways that we frame value is the cost that the licensee charges the advisor. I think it's the cost of doing business, but they see it as a way of defining value. When they can't see value in another way, then price becomes a hobgoblin for value, and we have to think about that. We have to think about that carefully. So one of the things that's really interesting here is these are the average prices. Top tier price is $49,000 a year, and then everyone else is about $53,000 a year. That is the absolute bottom of what's acceptable to charge to run a profitable licensee. <coughs> We think that in many cases, the true cost of the licensee services is closer to $90,000 if you're actually pricing everything. And if you price for risk, it's absolutely $89,000. Pricing for risk is not something we do well as an industry, and we ought to understand that. And we ought to understand that really well. So understanding how to price for risk becomes really important to us and to us as an industry because the risk sits somewhere. And for a lot of these people in this room, the risk sits with you. There are people I can see sitting in the room with the room, the risk absolutely sits with them and they've got to bear that cost all the way through. The pricing models have started to split. We do this work in the UK, which is the, the market which is most like ours. Their, model, their, model, their market has bifurcated to the top and the bottom model with the variable licensing fee and the combination of fixed and variable. So understanding that becomes really important. Um, this is really interesting to me. This is do you get value from what's going on? Let's take the top tier out of that. Let's say that that's changed dissatisfaction, which is driving through. So let's say that, that, that we'll get mean reversion on that after a while. But have a look at how well the large, medium, uh, large and medium are doing in these numbers. The satisfaction numbers are actually pretty strong. And as we go through this data set, we're going to see a persistent theme. The satisfaction numbers with the large and, and medium-sized licensees are strong. And some numbers, they're really high, and I wouldn't expect them ever to go higher. So starting to see this trend emerge is really interesting. And if we go back two to three years, they've come up strongly. So the, the industry is starting to revert to a post hain style behaviour, which I think is quite interesting. This is interesting to me. Software costs are split unevenly and people don't think they're getting good value. They think it's appearing in different places. And this is also really interesting to me. If you're in the software business, the licensee used to provide a lot of services, provide a lot of additions, provide a lot of other services. Have a look at where the support is starting to come from and the other spaces. Life insurers and platforms, support has not increased a lot, but the software vendors are starting to replace that. And that's starting to, starting to be an interesting behaviour inside the network, and we're seeing a lot more of them inside the, the social gatherings that we're going to. They're starting to provide other services, which I think is quite interesting. This is also challenging. I, I think this is the, like the first time mortgage switching effect. I don't know how you feel about this, but there is some pressure inside the network is that those people who have switched across to new licenses are getting significant benefits to those people who've remained loyalty. There appears to be no loyalty bonus, there's a switching bonus. So having this conversation is really, is really interesting. So it's 30% cheaper and I get a holiday for about, on average, nine months. We're seeing up to 24 months. We've seen one 36 months one, but that's an outlier, so it doesn't really make that much difference. But the reality is the price isn't being evenly distributed and some people are being advantaged inside this process, which is quite interesting. Um, then we start to look at satisfaction, and this is the thing which I think is one of the most important indicators of all this research. How happy are people? How, how satisfied with what they're going? Um, when I was writing this, I think it was 2 o'clock in the morning, so you'll have to excuse my in-jokes. Um, Satisfaction is, is um, track one, side two of the uh, Rolling Stones album, Out of Our Heads. 
which shows you how my brain works, um, unfortunately. But the really, reality is satisfaction is an important driver of, of what's going on. And the really interesting thing to think about here is that one of the ways that people drive satisfaction, particularly happiness, is there's a couple of people who describe it well. I'm sure a lot of people know who Eckhart Tolle is. He's a German um, psychologist who spent a lot of time and energy in researching, uh, researching how happiness works, which means be here now. Forget the past, focus on what you're doing, focus on what you can control. It's really important to make sure that the, um, the, uh, uh, the grammar, the apostrophe and the punctuation on this is right. And so it's, it's be here now, not be here now, or any of those sorts of things. Getting grammar and punctuation and capitalization is really right, really important through all this process. And it's the difference between helping your uncle jack off a horse, and I won't say the rest of the sentence for those of you who, who know what happens to, um, if you change the J to a smaller case. Um, uh, so in, important to understand that in pursuit of happiness, you can see what's going on. And this is what I was talking about earlier. Look at how happy the large and medium are. Those numbers are strong. 66% of Australians saying that they're happy about something is a high number. That's big. Australians are not a particularly happy group. If you map this around the world, it changes geographically. If that number was 40% in Germany, then that would be a happy number. You've all heard the famous joke about the German refugee child in the Second World War, gets moved to England, um, goes with his people, and after can't talk, doesn't say a thing, they think that he's, um, think that he's been impaired by post-traumatic stress disorder. After two years, he looks at his adoptive mother and says, the soup is cold. She says, my God, you can talk. And why, why are you talking now? And he said, until now, everything has been satisfactory. <laughs> so the, the, reality is, the reality is that this is a strong number. And you're going to see a series of strong numbers. People are satisfied with this. There are groups of people who are in the large and medium, are happy with where they are. They're satisfied with the service they're getting. And that's a strong indicator for the industry looking forward. If we start to have a look at this in terms of what's going on, satisfaction is, is the cycle is ending and satisfaction is moving up and across and people are starting to platten out. We're getting this kind of reversion in the data where things are settling down. And the reversion is working across all sorts of industries. The one that's most interesting to me is the power planning. If you have a look at the end and sort of uh, the top tier power planning has certainly recovered. The large, and the, uh, the large has gone down and the medium is up and very strong. Paraplanning takes work out of the system and getting that right is, allows advisors to focus on what they're doing, which is taunting customers and understanding those systems. So making sure that you understand how you're doing in that number is really important and you can see here what's, what's actually happening. And we go into this, the other one that's really interesting to me is compliance is starting to flatten out across the board. Compliance is starting to become an average behaviour and an average of what's going on, so you can see what's going on. The one which is on my mind are the PDMs and BDMs. This number says it shows a fairly flat number. If I separate that out by company, it's not flat. Different businesses have very big ranges in PDM and BDM satisfaction at the moment, and it's going to be really important. Some businesses have underinvested post hain some businesses have overinvested, some of the new players have recruited good people, and that's going to be, become a problem for the future, because as BDMs go, so goes the money. And as, as the money goes, so goes the satisfaction. So those are important things to manage in the future. And this is a story in three chapters. You can see what's going on in terms of it. Um, and you can see acquisition and succession is really improving from the medium size. Technology is flattening out. Business planning is improving for the others. And marketing support is flat as well. Here's why this is important. And this is why, why we ought to talk about it. Because if you look at what the weighted driver's satisfaction here, number one is communication. Really interesting, for the third year in a row, communication has been up there. For every other year that we've done this, and remember we've been doing this for, uh, for 20 years, it's been remuneration. How much am I being paid? How much am I being paid isn't even in the top three anymore. It's 
what's happening with communication, who's helping my compliance support, and what's going on with education and training. And after that, all the drivers fall to single digits. So you can see here what's actually doing this and what's happening in the top tier. The large and medium, the numbers are better than 70%. Big sample, high scores, which shows satisfaction is up and strong, and those businesses will have an ability to grow and grow by, offer, by their offering. Those businesses falling outside that range will, will struggle with that. Matt Lawler's looking daggers at me, my bad, sorry. <laughs> the data's the data, mate. Um, um, so this is, this is, this is uh, I'm, feel, I'm feeling it, Matt. <laughs> um, you, you can claim I wasn't there, I couldn't help you. I'm, I'm new, let me, let me help. Um, so you can start to see what's actually happening in this. The other part about this is when you look at the specific actions of the licensee, we're getting this thing which, um, uh, which people would call the great same. Things don't really look any different. No one's really reaching out to help apart from some of the guys in the medium size. So when we kind of get the great same going on, it becomes hard to shift too. Like, well, what's the point? Why would I go? What's actually happening in this space? Now we get to the next bit, which is the bit which I find really interesting and really challenging. If we are to grow, then we have to change the way in which we behave. There's a whole bunch of psychological thought about the concept of radical honesty and people being direct and open. It's really hard inside this industry. And there's some couple of guys were asked a lot of questions yesterday, Renato and Scott, who's just gone on AMP. And Colin was asking all the right questions. They were hard questions, right? You know, and they were the questions like, you've promised change for 20 years, why this time? Those guys are in a tough spot. Uh, and I felt like they should say, I don't know, mate, I just got here. I'm just, I'll tell you in a year when I figured out what's going on. But we need to be able to be very direct and very honest about what change needs to look like and what has to happen to be, for us to be successful. And if we start to unpick this, every year I've collected this data because my postgraduate work is in trust and I've collected it and I haven't really talked about it, but this year we're going to actually talk about it. This is how trust works. This is, a, this is the design done by, in the middle 80s by a man called David McNeil and it's the best algorithm for trust that's ever been built, which is, is the person I'm dealing with competent? Are they benevolent? Which doesn't mean are they giving, but it means are their beliefs aligned with mine? Um, do they have integrity uh, and are, are they predictable? So competence, benevolence, integrity and predictability define how, the people, how people look at trust. And that flexes a bit depending on the system, but mostly those are the most important drivers. And the most important one for most humans is benevolence. Is this person's beliefs aligned with mine? Which is why soft selling has worked a lot in the past, because as soon as someone says, well, this person looks a lot like me, they act a lot like me, then, uh, then, that, then I'm going to model those behaviours and talk about that. If you want to read about that, he doesn't do it on purpose. There's a guy called Robert Cialdini, he's probably written the best book on that, called um, Influence, which is really important. And McNeil Whistler's interesting to read, but he has no easy-to-read books. They're all really hard work. Um, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about leadership in this space and what's actually going on. Have a look at particularly the top and uh, top tier and mid tier, how well the advisors say that they are suited to their role. Those scores are extremely high. They think management in these businesses is very good. Top tier is still struggling and still inheriting the biggest pain of change, but in the mid tiers, the numbers are all over 80%, which is an extremely high score when people are saying, how good is this person at their role? Are they, are they competent? Do they know what they're doing? Are they able to do it? Can they, are they genuine and honest? What are the things which are going on? So the numbers are incredibly high. Now, here's the interesting thing. Been collecting this data for 10 years. These numbers are up, not down, post-home. Usually that bubbles around the 60%. So the real conversations which have happened in those businesses over the past two years have flexed numbers up, not down. 
Who knew? If you actually told people what was going on, what the problem is and what you're doing to fix it, they went, okay, let's get on with it. I think everyone knew, but it's been hard to have that conversation. Let's talk about intimacy, which is one of the other drivers. How intimate, how well do they understand you and your business? How well do they understand what's going on? And again, numbers are above 70%. Really intimate, they've got empathy towards my business. How well they, they know who you are and how relatable are those numbers are extremely high. And again, the numbers are flexed up, not down in the mid-tiers. And again, that's an incredible outcome of the Hain Royal Commission. Let's talk about community, a little bit different. Um, community's a big thing of part of this. It's part of why, one of the reasons why I think we're so happy to be here. We haven't seen each other for so long and talking to other people about what we do for a living is, they, you know, they change rooms pretty quickly when they say, what do you do? I, I work in economics and financial services. They find something else to do or I work in research, but that's, that's okay. So those numbers are up as well. So understanding how community works is important and manufacturing community is incredibly important. And then let's talk to this one, which is talking about navigating the future. How much is this group going to help me navigate the future and understand that? And I want you to look at the dark blue and the light blue and start to add those numbers together. If you look at large and medium uh, uh, together there, again, they're through the 80% mark. So once again, those businesses that are in sitting in that spot are engaged with their people about helping them navigate the future. And we need to find a way to make sure that we capitalise that, because if we don't deliver in the next 12 months, then those numbers will start to fall again. Having done the work to achieve those scores, as a group, we need to find a way to engage to start to make sure that we can actually move those things along and move them through. They also believe that the people are competent. So they're competently led, they believe in what they're doing, and the threats are exogenous. At the moment, the threats in terms of exogenous are macroeconomic threats. They're not microeconomic threats. There's more money running around the system than there has been in the last, I'm not really sure what the numbers are on that, and I would hesitate to say it without being incorrect. I know there's $84 billion of unspent tourism money sitting in the system. Um, that's possibly being spent on houses. And one of the great shortages of, the, of, of COVID has been men's lycra wear, as people rush back to cycling. Um, um, but the reality is there's more money washing around. So the big effects are not microeconomic effects, but macroeconomic effects. That's legislation change. And I wasn't here to be here for the judge's presentation, but I heard a lot about it. And one of the things that she said was really interesting is that the corpse law is the, is the black letter law overrides everything else. She's right, it does. We all study law, we know that. But we hadn't thought about that for a while. We were looking at the regs, not the law. Well, I was. And that's a really interesting outcome because the law is different to the regs. It's not exactly the same, which is quite important. And looks look at benevolence. People think that, that people are interested in their happiness. One of the things that I wanted to talk about, though, is when you look at the data, is when you start looking for clues. I think the big change is over. A lot of people have been tracking for a change for a while, and you can see here that at the bottom of this, are you going to change licensee? About half the people inside the large firm say that they're going to change licensee. That was 75% a year ago. It's now down to half, so the people are stabilising. And at the medium and large, they're not changing. So the out is almost over, and the across looks like a very soft integer at the moment. If you get into the research when you say, oh, you're going to change licensee, half of people say yes and they say, have you chosen who you're going to? The answer is no. Well, then, well, you haven't really decided, right? You're just annoyed at the moment. So I'll be candid with you. If you dig into the numbers, it shows you the annoyance numbers are up, but the real change numbers are not much change. So that's really important to understand. Um, let's talk about likability. And this is a really important number to understand. We measure this two ways. We measure NPS and we measure authenticity, which are two important measures in this space. So the likability scores are starting to rise. And for the first time, we're getting positive numbers in NPS scores in the tiers. 
have a look at the large and the medium. First time we're starting to see positive NPS scores. So people are saying about their licensee, Australians are mostly negative on licensee scores, uh, on NPS scores, but we're starting to see positive NPS scores. And long may this continue, right, if you're running one of those practices. That's an extraordinary achievement. If you can hold that up, the large is still negative, and that's, that's the trend that we're focusing on. Um, if we start to look at who's vulnerable and who's why, and we're talking about who's switching in the next few months, you can see that not many people are, apart from the large, and it's gone up strongly. But again, when we drive into that, that's, that's not actually real. It's, it's passive. I'm going to finish in the last five minutes in terms of the maps of opportunity. What's coming down the pipeline and what's important? One of the things that I think we get distracted by all the time is the amount of forced regulatory change inside the organisation. And I want to talk about the size of the opportunity. This is one of my favourite killers of all time. He looks exactly like what he is, the killer of the most people in, the, in human history. His name is Trofim Lysenko. He was bought from China post the Great Leap Forward to change the way in which China used its agricultural policies. And he went to China and said, We've got to drive value out of the farms, so they're going to stop being farms and we're going to turn them into small steel foundries. So the net outworking of that is they stopped farming and 20 million people died. So one of the, one of the things that we have to worry about is not that, that, that the government is trying to stop us from doing our job, but we have to find a way to actually say to them, thanks very much for your advice. We're actually going to go about the business of making people's lives better by delivering financial advice to them in a way which allows them to change their future. And I fundamentally believe in that. If you want to get the good data on that, contact Peter Onsby because he's got a big sample of 11,000 people who answered a survey which showed how advice positively has positively affected their lives. And we've mapped that against people who didn't get advice and look for the difference. The difference is fundamental and substantial. Um, here are the success states. We can map that out for you in fine detail about who survives and why inside financial services because the UK is about three to five years ahead of us through the revolution and understanding that becomes really important. You have to choose one of these states and back it. The one that doesn't exist in Australia at the moment and you've heard the government making noise about it um, two weeks ago when Joe Longo said in Senate's estimates, didn't tell anyone who's going to say it about robo-advice, saw the commissioners' heads exploded because they weren't talking about it, this platform up model. How do you make this cheap and easy? How do you make it scalable? How do you make advice doing what it's going to do? And you can see some of the platforms starting to flirt with this. And why wouldn't it? That's a really interesting idea. This is why they're having this conversation. Lots of people know about the orphans. This is the number ones that we can find. There's lots more that you can probably find. How many people used to have advice networks still exist in the side of the system, think that they have an advice network, and don't anymore? We can find about 200,000. I suggest it's probably twice that number. And that's really valuable because those people have an affection for advice, want advice, and have the capacity to pay for it, but are currently unadvised. The other thing to think about is that when you start to divide the numbers this way, and this is working with the tax department to look backwards through the numbers about the money sitting inside the system, in the next 20 years, give or take, this isn't perfect modelling by any means, we think about $3.9 trillion is going to move through the system. It's the biggest shift of wealth that's ever existed as the baby boomers move from being, well, frankly, dead to alive. The youngest baby boomer is 56 this year. So they're going to move through that in the next 20 years and that money's going to shift its forms, change its state. And it's going to change its state either in a managed system or an unmanaged system. One of the things that most people fear is that it changes state in an unmanaged system and that's frankly terrifying. If you start to divide this up and have a look at the rich, how many rich are they to make this useful? Because going back to the previous slides about Dunbar's number, if you can only have 150 relationships, you should have those relationships and transform the lives of as many wealthy people as you can. There are a lot of very wealthy people in Australia who are unadvised. And we, we, we've stacked it up. 
And if you start to look at about what drives their set action, how they, how they make decisions, what their propensity for advice is, you can do this in a very formulaic way and start to understand what's going on inside that system. The desire for advice is high. They're weakly advised at the moment. They don't quite understand the value that an advisor adds, not the way that they do in the UK and the US and other nations that have had it for a while. So that opportunity remains large and it remains largely untapped. This is the final slide. Because I couldn't access the IWF research, I mean, it's their research, not our research, we simply did it for them. This is some research we did for ourselves and it's looking at the best possible retirement. This is slightly in reaction to what Astra was saying that you need this much money in retirement to be, have a successful retirement. We thought, well, that's not true. Let's dig into what the real satisfaction drivers in retirement are. And one of the things that we found unbidden was that as you have an advice relationship, your satisfaction both pre-retirement and post-retirement leaps significantly. This is a big sample of Australians, about 16,000 Australians. So you can see very clearly what's going on here. If we can get those relationships right, if we can form the relationships with people, a couple of things happen which are fundamental. As we know that they get richer because advisors stop them making stupid decisions. That's the most powerful thing that an advisor can do. We know that they are happier. We have data point after data point after data point after that. We know that they are more certain about their future. And we know that we need to find a way to make that accessible. We need to make it easy for them to choose and unchallenging in their minds. That's the big challenge of the next three years, making sure that the network is satisfied. It's really clear that the medium and large uh, organisations are a long way down that line and they have that opportunity. And it's really clear that the market's ready for it. The market's got a, a big enough size to do it. And it's really clear that you can add transparent and real value. I hope to work with you in the next few years and trying to find a way to actually get on with it and get on with the growth. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to me. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Um, we've got about just over two minutes for questions, so not a lot of time. I, I've got a question, but I want to just throw it to the floor given we don't have much time. So is there anyone that has a, uh, a burning question they'd like to, to ask Andrew? Anyone? I'll get started. Oh, no, there we go, over the back there. Um, great presentation, Andrew. Thank you. The numbers you had on in relation to cost to serve per advisor for an AFSL, was that per advisor, per office, per what was it? That was per, essentially per, per uh, office. Per, per practice? Yeah. Okay, thank yeah. you. I've got full data on it if you want to contact me. I'm happy to share it with you. Anyone else? Andrew, head spinning sort of amount of data there. Yeah, um, sorry. So, no, no. But, like, it, it, getting back to this question of growth, if you have to right now prioritise what to do when you look at that data, what is it? If you can synthesise it down into one question. You know. So, one of the big challenges that I see inside the practices that we work with, and we, I mean, like you, we've enjoyed great relationships with businesses and spend time with them and have become friends with them and, and, and work on them. It's getting those systems and processes for growth right. Growth isn't something which is abstract or accidental or, or any of those things. It's actually a process. And you can choose to get on with growth. And that means getting the sales process right, getting the numbers right, getting the systems and processes right. In the last two years before the lockdown and COVID, we spent a lot of time with the um, 10 UK businesses which were growing incredibly strongly. And the, the, the thing which was across all of them was that they had their processes down really clearly. And the other thing which I was, was struck me is that how much that abandoned the old. Yeah, that used to be the case. The new model looks like this, and we just have to get on with it. We have to forget everything else we've done. And for some of the businesses, that the principals, the people who'd started the businesses had left the business. They still owned the business. 
employed new people because when one of them said this really clearly, he said, if I'm still here, they're going to be coming to me persistently and saying, Philip, I don't want to do it this way. But now we've got Maria and Maria's running it and Maria gets to say, I don't care what you want. This is the way that we're doing it. This is the process. Our number's about growth and the number's about operations. So much of financial services and what you do, there's a combination of art and science in it. Getting the science to be rhythmic, formulaic and a production system takes the work out of the system and allows the advisors to grow and to hit that Dunbar number and hit it with the biggest possible number. And that's the bit that has to happen. So many of the things that people that we visit are still running old systems and you go and visit them and you're kind of slightly heartbroken when you walk out because you pat the filing cabinet on the way out thinking, yeah. Or you find out they've had a data breach and you sit there and you look at their server spinning in their office and thinking, oh shit, this is not gonna good, be good in the future. And that, that process has to be embraced. And a lot of people in the room are gonna be responsible for, dri for driving that. I look at Nathan now, mate, it's a bit unfair to pick on you, you just happen to be sitting at the front. But I mean, that's the process that you have to help people on the journey of. That's gonna change their lives forever. And that they have to be the ones willing to make that change there. Any other questions? Any lights? I was really interested in the in the 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 the, the stats on the trust, um, yeah. you know, and the gap between the big firms and the and the and the smaller firms. Do you think the big firms can ever match those? I do. Trusts? I think it's going to come back. I, I just think that it's harder. The larger you are, the harder it is, and you you get that kind of government effect, right? So getting to fifty is about as good as you're going to get. But I also think that they've gone through the most transformational pain. And if you've been through the most transformational pain, it just takes longer to get through the system. There's a great metaphor for this, uh, is that um, humans adapt and they adapt quite quickly and it's a big struggle. I used to be, when I was younger, into ocean racing. Once I was coming back from Hobart and we got a massive storm, 60 knot wind, 16 meter seas. And for the first four hours, I would admit I was absolutely terrified. And lucky I had my uh, white weather gear was oversized, otherwise everyone would have seen me shaking inside it. But by, after four hours of being in the storm, I'm in the storm. I'm not dying. It's okay. I get used to it and I move on. And I think that's what humans do. By the end of it, I was steering the boat with my foot and eating my cereal out of my, out of my box because it was, you know, it's, you know, we're, we're just going along. So that's what I think will happen in this and that process will take time. Some, some people have got big struggles in this room, but they have to remain steadfast and they have to over-communicate in that time and that's going to be really important. My last question as a fund manager, you mentioned there's 122 firms that do half the business. Yeah. Can you tell me who they are? I can, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk later. That's, the, that's what the Anubis database does. I don't know what to do with this database. I've spent millions of dollars building it, but it's, is it valuable? I don't know. It's great for understanding the network, but beyond that, I can't help you. Okay, excellent. Well, look, uh, we're out of time. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Andrew Rimwood. Thank you very much.